Thanks for letting me be here. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, when was the last time you felt really lonely? Can you remember that time? Or maybe another question. I was just talking to Sam a little earlier. When was the last time that you felt fearful? Weren't sure about an outcome of a particular doctor's diagnosis or something with a kid, and you were fearful. Or what about that powerful emotion of rejection? Do you remember what that emotion feels like? Well, as you know, we're in our third week uh, walking through the Psalms, and I love this series that Pastor Jarrett has us in. Um, and one of the things that uh, the psalm that we're going to look at today um, kind of coaches us up on how we can overlook or, or power our way through with God's help those powerful emotions. Um, David felt each of those emotions in the, in the psalm and in the story that we're going to look at today, and yet he didn't stay there. In fact, he penned a beautiful prayer that we're going to use as our home base today. It's Psalm 143, and we're going to put the words on the screen. Obviously, if you've got a copy of God's Word uh, there, I'd love to have you uh, look at that with us. But I want you to just listen closely to what David says in this beautiful prayer that he prays. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy in your faithfulness. Answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me. For my enemies, O Lord, I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. Isn't that beautiful? But David wasn't always that godly with his actions or with his attitudes. <clears throat> he got to that point with a lot of testing, a, a lot of trial, a lot of turmoil. It took him years of figuring out that he really could trust God. Early in his life, he did what you and I are tempted to do. When the tension builds, when the pressure mounts, he... He took over the control center, the command center of his life, and he did what was right in his own eyes. We blow it, 
just like David does sometimes, and we are tempted to do the same thing. We take over the control center and we say, God, I'll, I'll take it from here. I, I don't think that you can handle this one. This one just seems too big for you. You know, at times we are all motivated by different things. There, there are certain emotions that each of us deal with, and we know the power that those emotions have in our lives. Some of these emotions, if we feel them long enough, and if we feel them deeply enough, then they have the power to move us outside the guidelines that we have a pre-established for ourselves, the financial guidelines or the relational guidelines, maybe even the decision-making guidelines that we've warned others against, and we just crater. We give in to those emotions. The four emotions that I'm talking about are fear and anger and loneliness and rejection. Fear, anger, loneliness, and rejection. These four emotions have the power to move the most ethical, biblical, and committed Christian outside of the pre-established guidelines and boundaries that have set up into immoral and unethical actions because they can be so powerful. I grew up uh, in the mountains of North Carolina, at least I like to say that. I grew up in Middle Tennessee, but the summers, for about six to eight weeks, I spent in the most beautiful place on earth, the, the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And um, one of the things we loved to do the most was to whitewater canoe. And one of the things that you learn if you are doing whitewater canoeing is that you have to ignore the most basic impulse you have when the rapids begin to move really, really fast. The impulse that you have is to grab the sides of the canoe. When you feel like you're losing your balance, when you feel like things are getting a little bit too, too quick, you, your, your tendency, your impulse is to grab the sides of the canoe because you think that that's going to help you regain balance. But in fact, if you grab the sides of the canoe, you're going to turn yourself and everybody else in your canoe and everything else in your canoe over into the river. And you have to learn to ignore your basic impulse. These four emotions have natural impulses built into them that make you feel like you have to do something. When you're overwhelmed with a deep sense of loneliness or fear or rejection, there's something inside of all of us that says, I've got to do something to get back in control of my life. Some of you may be here today and you're dealing with a major hurt or a major decision. And today I hope you'll hear God speaking to you saying, wait, 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 hang on a second. When it comes to these emotions... You have to ignore your basic intuition because to follow it is to invite catastrophe into your life. I want you to turn with me, leave, leave a finger there in Psalm 143, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21 is one of those instances where we find our friend David who penned this prayer taking matters into his own hands. Um, he gave in to these emotions. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was afraid. The Bible tells us that he was alone, 
loneliness and fear, two of the four emotions that we've just talked about. And he felt like he'd been rejected. Um, we'll see that in just a minute. Chapter 21, 1 Samuel 21. While you're, while you're turning there, let me, let me kind of set this up a little bit. Um, David's probably my second uh, favorite character in all of God's Word. Um, you remember he was anointed as king as a teenager. Um, there was a king. God had, had given the people the desire of their heart, and they had a king, and his name was what? Saul. And the issue was that Saul kept messing up and kept messing up, and God finally says, listen, I'm done with Saul. And so he sends his priest, Samuel, down to the house of Jesse, and he says, I want you to anoint my chosen person, my chosen man, to be, to be king. And so Samuel does what God is leading him to do, and he goes to Jesse's household, and he anoints David as king. The problem in David's mind, he's no idiot, even though he's a teenager, and he says, hang on a second, there's already a king. And God speaks to David's spirit and says, just be patient. In my time, you will become king. And through an unusual set of circumstances, he's ushered in to be the captain of Saul's army. It's obvious to everyone that God has his hand on this teenager. Uh, remember, he's heroic in battle with Goliath. He becomes the captain of Saul's army. He marries Saul's daughter. He becomes best friends with Saul's son. He becomes just this guy that everybody is singing songs about. We, we read about a song that says that, that Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. God's hand is on this young man. And so when we get to this particular instance, there's one other thing that's happened, and that is that Jonathan, Saul's son, has come to David and said, listen, you're going to have to leave the kingdom. My father is intent on killing you. He is so jealous of you that he's going to eliminate you. And so this mighty warrior David, this, this warrior who's killed Goliath, is told to run. And that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, or whatever is here. Here we find David alone and afraid. Two emotions that warrior David is unaccustomed to. And he lies. He weaves this unbelievable tale about this special mission that Saul's sent him on and that his men are waiting for him to meet up with them and he needs some food for them. And he's got this whole thing going on and we just want to push pause and go, David, what, what are you doing? I mean, why lie? Why weave this unbelievable story? God is with you. Remember the lion? Barehanded. Remember the bear? Barehanded. Remember Goliath the giant? Just a stone and a slingshot. Why would you move outside the boundaries that God has set up for your life and lie? 
Why would you take matters into your own hands? And David would say, I felt alone. I was afraid. God's plan wasn't working as fast or as clearly as I could see. I'd been rejected. And he did what we are tempted to do. He took matters into his own hands and he grabbed the side of the canoe. And suddenly, what God had established for him was slipping away. And David was afraid that he wasn't going to amount to anything. He wasn't going to be a somebody anymore. And those feelings caused him to take matters into his own hands. And he was thinking, if I don't look out for me, then no one else is going to look out for me. I've got to get back in control. I've got to grab the sides of the canoe. You know how this section ends? If you'll look there in verse 10, the Bible says that David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. So mighty warrior, killed his 10,000. Here we find him running to a foreign king for protection. We're going, David, God hadn't forgotten you. Have you forgotten that God can be trusted? This story ends in a tragic, tragic, tragic way. You see, while this interchange was going on with the priest, there was another man that was there in the building. And the other man saw David come and talk to the priest. He saw the priest help David get some food. He saw the priest help arm David. And this guy's name was Doeg. Doeg saw the whole thing. Later on, he hears Saul say, David is my enemy. And anyone who can give me some information about David, I'm going to give them fields. I'm going to give them wealth. I'm going to bless them in an unbelievable way. Is there anyone here that can tell me about my enemy, David? No one says a word. And Doeg raises his hand. He says, I can. I saw him in the city of Nob. And I saw the priests there help him. I saw them give him food. I saw them arm him. And I saw the whole thing with my own eyes. I don't know if he's there now, but I saw him there just a little while ago. And so Saul rallies all of his army and he goes thundering down from where he was to the city of Nob to confront that priest, Ahimelech. And if you look in chapter 22, verses 16 to 22, we can read about that encounter. And the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. Did they know? No. David had lied to Ahimelech. He didn't know. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, the priests. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day 
when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. Now this is so extreme, it almost seems like a fairy tale. But imagine the emotion that your lie, because you panicked and didn't wait on God's timing, caused a man's life to be taken. Not just one man's, but 84 of your closest friends and your wife and your kids and all of your livestock because of your one lie. Everybody suffered because of David's lie. This whole story is over, and David realizes what a mess that he's made of things. We get to chapter 23, verse 2, and we note that there's been a change in spirit or attitude or principle. David's learned a lesson. And in chapter 23, verse 2, we read, Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. What we find in, this, in his life is a, is a major turning point. Where he says, I dare not take matters into my own hands. I want to be directed by God, regardless of my fear, regardless of my loneliness, regardless of my rejection. I'm going to trust him and try to put him first in my life. Now, I've got no way of knowing if this tragic event is the background for the prayer that we read in Psalm 143, but it certainly could have been. So look with me again in Psalm 143. Verses 1 and 2 say, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me. In your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. David begins this particular prayer by reminding himself that God is three things. He is merciful. He is faithful, and he is righteous. David trusted God's character. God had made a covenant with God's people that he would always be their protector, that he would always, um, they would always be his people as long as they obeyed his commands. And so David calls out to that God, and he says, God, because of your covenant, because of your character, because of the promises that I've seen you fulfill in the past, I'm going to put my trust in you. Um, he acknowledges God's faithfulness as a promise keeper. David points out that God's righteousness was a second indicator, even beyond his mercy, that God would be who he said he was. David teaches us that when doubts begin to surface or strong emotions begin to rise, that the first thing we need to do is to recall, we need to remember who God 
is. Now, Pastor Avery, Pastor Jarrett just walked us through a, a series on our essentials. Um, and we talked about who God is, the, the character traits of God that, that we rely on, that, that we take straight from God's Word, that re- remind us and, and build a foundation for our lives about who God is and how He will lead us. David remembered who God is. David came to the point where he could say, I trust God's character. God is all wise, so he knows what is best for me. So I'm not going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm not going to grab the sides of the canoe. I know he has a plan. Look at verse 5. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you've done, and I ponder the works of your hands. Three times he basically says the same thing. In that one verse, I remember, I meditate, and I ponder. A second lesson that David teaches us is that we need to remember what God has done. Once we remember who God is, the second lesson we learn is that we remember what God has done. It's wise to remind ourselves of his blessing, of his character, and of his promises. Psalm 94, 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Another word for consolations is comfort. Um, Your comfort cheers my soul. Your promises that that I've seen you fulfill in the past, the, the, the principles that I've learned from your word that have been timeless, that have come through time and time again, those are consolations to me. They comfort me. They, they help remind me that you are faithful, faithful, faithful. Some of you remember another uh, beautiful psalm, Psalm 121. And Psalm 121 verse 1 says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. Well, the writer of that psalm is not saying that to look at physical hills, we're going to receive help from that. What are the hills symbolic of? The hills are symbolic of these promises, of these consolations that we receive from knowing that God fulfills these blessings and these promises and these character traits over and over and over again. For instance, I will be your ever-present help in time of need. For instance, you can cast all your cares on me because I will care for you. For instance, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. David came to the place where he understood that it was wise to deal with the present crisis by considering God's faithfulness in the past. David understood that God is all wise and he knows what is best for me. But God is also all-loving, and he wants what is best for me. Look at verse 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. It's beautiful. Because you know me, and because you love me, I trust you. You see David's progression? Once David remembers who God is, and then he remembers what God has done, it reinforces his trust in his loving Heavenly Father. Verse 8 reminds me of Lamentations 3, 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
Notice the end of verse 8. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. In other words, direct me. My decisions, my time, my finances, relationally. God, I need your direction. I want your direction. I read one author say that the greatest question that we can ever ask, any of us, regardless of age, the greatest question we can ever ask when we're facing a critical decision is to say, God, what's the wise thing to do? Considering my past, considering my present circumstances, considering my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? Father, I trust you. I trust you. So, Lead me. The first Friday of June is National Donut Day. I know all of you are very familiar with that. And uh, about three years ago, I had the privilege of having one of my grandkids at my house on National Donut Day. And I decided I was going to do this up right. I don't get to see him that much, and so I was going to make a memory. And so I got up before he got up, and I went to the donut shop, and I bought a dozen glazed chocolate donuts. I got a dozen chocolate donut holes. I got two blueberry donuts, and I got two old fashions covered in chocolate. And I got home before he got up, and I got two plates out, and I put all of that on two plates, kind of made a pyramid And when he came down the stairs, I wish you could have seen his eyes. He was so excited. He calls me Cap, and he said, Cap, this is great. And he starts eating and eating and eating. And finally, his mom came down the steps. (laughs) And his mom said, Watts, how many donuts have you had? And he said, two and two. He's five years old. And we were just getting started, by the way. And uh, she said, that's it. You can't have any more donuts. And she gave me that look that she got from her mother. Now, if we could get inside the mind of that five-year-old little boy, he might have been thinking something like this. Mom, what is wrong? with you. (laughs) This is the greatest day of my life. What is wrong with you? Why couldn't you just have stayed in bed 15 or 20 minutes more long? What's your problem? The problem is his mom knows better. Granddads, they know better too. We just lose our minds sometimes. I guess it's a different category of love, but His parents knows what's best for Watts. It's best if he doesn't eat a box of donuts. It's just not good for him. His parents know that he needs guidance. His parents know that he needs direction. They can see further ahead than a five-year-old can see. They understand the consequences of various decisions. And fortunately for us, we have a loving Heavenly Father who knows we need his direction, and he promises to guide us so that we avoid painful consequences of unwise decisions. Jesus said in John 16, 13, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he will guide you in truth. You get that? Not only can God direct us, 
He desires to direct us. Verse 9 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. See the inference again to God's character? God, you've delivered me in the past. Bear. Goliath. Lion. Deliver me again. It's almost as if he is saying, I want you to be glorified, so deliver me. In Psalm 40, verse 17, David writes, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help. You are my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Verse 10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Teach me. That's why we have God's word. It's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. It's why some of you just had a great experience in your life group because God designed us to want to to relate to others. There's a community gene inside each of us where we connect with each other. We receive guidance from one another, encouragement, sometimes admonishment, but most of the time we receive encouragement from one another because they can help lift our burdens. That's how God designed us, and He can use others to teach us His Word. Obviously, we have His Spirit. Then uh, verse 10 says, Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. When I think of God leading us, I automatically think of Psalm 23. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us on paths of righteousness. Paths that are pleasing to Him. Paths that are right for us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but, but God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will always provide a way of escape. So God will preserve us in the middle of a temptation. You may have seen this story in the fall, about nine months ago. Um, It's a story that came out about two activists that were with some group called Just Stop Oil. And they walked into the National Gallery in London with a can of tomato soup. They opened up that can of tomato soup and they threw it on Van Gogh's masterpiece, Sunflowers. Painting was... Completed in 1888, and some people say it's valued at $83 million. Then they pulled glue out of their shirts, put it on their hands, and glued their hands to the wall. I don't know about you, but when I saw that story, I was just angry. Um, Why would somebody do something like that? Social media blew up. You know, the whole thing. They've destroyed this, this invaluable painting. Well, later that afternoon, the National Gallery in London issued a statement that says that there's some minor damage to the frame, but the painting was unharmed. It turns out that they prepare precisely for such a thing. The painting had a very fine glaze of glass over it. It's even imperceptible to the human eye. And that little can of tomato soup couldn't hurt it. 
Folks, the attacks of the enemy um, or our emotions of fear, anger, rejection, and loneliness. Even the law itself hurls accusations against us, but our loving Heavenly Father is our protector, our preserver. And if we've placed our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are preserved. We're forever part of His family. Romans 8.1 says that now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is all-powerful, so He's able to accomplish what is best for me. David didn't know when he was going to become king. He didn't know how God was going to fulfill this promise he had made to him. But more importantly, there were some things that David did know. And if David was sitting here today, he would say, in spite of the uncertainty, in spite of the pain of what I caused, in spite of the powerful emotions of fear and loneliness and rejection, I know that I can trust God's character. I know that God is all wise and he knows what is best for me. He is all loving and he wants what is best for me. And he is all powerful. He is able to accomplish what is best for me. Therefore, I dare not grab the sides of the canoe and take matters into my own hands. I must trust him because he has been faithful, faithful, faithful. Folks, it's, it's almost impossible to relate to a lie causing the destruction of an entire city. But from where I sit as one of the pastors of this church, I, I frequently see men and women and teenagers ruining their lives. And the bottom line for this message is, when it comes to trusting God, some people say, I just couldn't do that. I mean, God, I know you created the stars, but I don't know if I can trust you with my finances. I know you created the moon and the sun, but letting you pick out who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, God, that's just too big for you. And when the trial comes, and when the pressure mounts, they grab the sides of the canoe and they take matters into their own hands and they invite disaster into their lives. And God is saying, remember... Remember, what I have arranged, I can sustain, I have not changed. Now in closing, there's a part of this story that is so cool, I cannot communicate in a way that needs to be shared, but I'm going to take a shot at it. Um, It's high drama, it takes place early on in this story, and I skipped it, I wanted to save the best part for last. You remember at the beginning of the story, David shows up at this priest Ahimelech's uh, place where he was leading worship and performing the sacrifices for God's people. And he asked for bread. He's hot, he's worn out, he's tired, he's lonely, he's been rejected. And Ahimelech gives him food. And then David says, do you have a weapon? I don't have a weapon. Now, it seems like that the priest would have gone, hang on a second. You don't have anybody with you. You're on this special mission from the king. You don't have any food. And you don't have a weapon. But he doesn't. He says, we don't have any weapon. Well, you know what we do? 
hang on a second. And he goes to the back of the building and he comes back with this one weapon. He says, David, this is the only weapon we have in the whole building. You'll recognize it. It's Goliath's sword. And David says, the Bible tells us, David says, he took the sword and he said, there's none like it. It's almost like God pauses this whole movie and says, hang on a second. This is high drama. This is a critical moment. David, are you going to put your faith, are you going to put your trust in this weapon? Or are you going to rely on me? Don't miss this. So awesome. David, you know what this sword represents. The futility of man in the face of of the power and intervention of God. It's a reminder of what a teenager with God can do that a seasoned giant could not. David, remember, I don't work the way that man works. When it looks like things are falling apart, I'm still in control. And David, remember, you walk down into that valley with a slingshot. David, that was our finest moment. And David missed it. The Bible says that he took the sword, he put his trust in it, and it was almost like he was saying, now I have a weapon and everything's going to be okay. And God would respond, a weapon that was useless against me. Psalm 143 offers us a template for living a life that pleases God. You and I frequently stand where David stands. We stand at a crossroads. And we have to choose not to be influenced by our emotions, even when our life is spiraling out of control. And we're thinking we've got to grab the sides of the canoe. We've got to get back in control because God is obviously not paying attention or God has fallen asleep. And I think he would say to each of us this morning, wait a second, wait a second. I'm still with you. You can trust me. I am your ever-present help in time of need. When facing a critical decision, remember who I am. Remember what I have done. And let that reinforce my trust in you. God is all wise. He knows what is best for us. And God is also all loving. He wants what is best for us. And He's all powerful. He's able to accomplish what is best for us. And our loving Heavenly Father can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. It instructs us. It gives us promise after promise. And it gives us stories like the one we've looked at today that show us that some of the biblical heroes at times are just like us. And they blow it. They take matters into their own hands and they grab the sides of the canoe. They, they take back control of their lives and say, I'll take it from here. And God 
You love us anyway. You forgive us anyway. As David's prayer starts, you are merciful, you are faithful, and you are righteous. And you take us back. We're grateful for that. Your word tells us in that psalm, in verse 2, that no one is living, no one living is righteous before you. We've all sinned. We've all come up short. And you love us anyway. You've provided a way. You've sent your son, Jesus, to deliver us from sin. And uh, Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. It's in his name that we worship. It's in his name that we call out to you. By believing in him, we can have forgiveness of these times that we take over control of our life. And so today, Father, we just want to say, help us, preserve us, deliver us, lead us, just like David says in Psalm 143. We beg you for your oversight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing in just a minute. And um, as we do, uh, there'll be some folks here at the front. Pastors will be down here. Some prayer partners will be down here. And we would love to pray with you. And um, if you've never experienced the hope that's found in Christ, the forgiveness when we blow it, the forgiveness that's found in Christ, we would love to celebrate with you the transfer of your life from you being in control to allowing God to be in control. Uh, that's why we exist as a church, to help people step from self-control to God's control, from sin to forgiveness, from death to life. And so they'll be down here at the front. would love to pray with you and visit with you about that. Obviously, if you just need some encouragement and want somebody to pray with you about a critical decision that you are navigating right now. Again, that's why they're here, and uh, that's why Champion Forest Jersey Village is here as well. We would count it a special privilege uh, to be able to, to pray with you about whatever need or whatever decision you're facing right now in your life. As we stand and sing, feel free to come. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.